No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. Hi, I'm Kelly Jean Fitzsimmons, and since I started No, You Tell It six, wow, yeah, six years ago, one of my favorite things has been going out to Fairleigh Dickinson University to switch up stories with students, faculty, and alums in their MFA in creative writing program. Earlier this summer, I gave authors Tiffany L. Berryman, Andrew Condoras, and Elliot Schrafer the theme, Schooled, to inspire the true life tales you are about to hear. And before Tiffany presents it for us, I'd like to do a little Q&A with the author so that we hear their voice. Stand up. I know you're sore from all the dancing. (laughs) What I really want to know is the most memorable Halloween costume you've ever worn. So, okay, when I was in sixth grade, I loved Dungeons and Dragons. (laughs) And I would always play a priest. Not a religious person, but I like some healing and wearing armor. And I'm using a mace. <laughs> so I, I scrambled together a priest outfit from my parents' closets, but it was like I was a tiny little kid, and I was like a huge turtleneck, and I was wearing like one of my mom's necklaces, but uh, it was a talisman in my mind, but it was just a lady's necklace. <laughs> you know, all the other kids were in really cool outfits. Everyone was just sort of like, no one knew what I was dressed in. Uh-huh. <laughs> Mystery. An early, like, drag don't do well by me. They usually wind up a jumble of spines in a trash can or forgotten on a bus seat. So I've learned to aim as low as possible in my umbrella purchases. My world is clackety, sharpity, broken buttons, torn nylon. From time to time, I let myself glance longingly into the land of responsible umbrella owners, though. (laughs) Plaids, rainbows, insignias, and foam handles. One day in January, a handsome stranger walked onto the bus with an umbrella beautiful enough to make me want to break my own rules. It looked plain and black from above, but when he stepped out onto the street, He opened a blue sky over his head. White clouds cottoned across it, cheerful, as if drawn by a child. I stared, pressed against the window of the 79th Street Crosstown. If I owned that umbrella, I could make a summer vista open above my head in the mist of Manhattan's sleep. I squinted until I saw the brand name on the clasp. I found that umbrella. I bought that umbrella. I loved that umbrella. (laughs) This was years ago when I was paying off my college loans by working as a tutor. My main clients that winter were a set of eighth grade twins whose parents were willing to pay me large amounts of cash for nightly homework help. It was a swell gig. 
Stafford and Perkins and Bank of America were very happy with the arrangement. The family owned a large townhouse on the Upper East Side between Fifth and Madison. Or actually, they owned two, having knocked down the intervening walls to make more space. Upstairs floors were drafty, gilded, empty. The whole family spent their day tenement style, crammed into the first floor, where gas fireplaces blazed and Vera from Barbados held court in the kitchen, making her delicious fried chicken every night. There, at the marble counter, snacking our way through dinner and problem sets, I'd work with the twins. They were charming, capricious, knuckleheaded, 13. One was daddy's girl, clapping and springing up in the middle of a problem set whenever father made one of his unexpected entrances. Home from business in Beijing, San Francisco, Midtown. The other was also daddy's girl, but the version that's quiet and still, luminous eyes waiting for something to reflect back to her. I was there because both truly and fully sucked at geometry and French. <laughs> Each time we'd work on a problem, content gaps from years before would yawn underneath. I couldn't make them pass eighth grade without going back and teaching them fifth and sixth and seventh. I was waiting for someone else to realize that this wasn't going to happen. What the twins had going for them, though, was a, lack, was a knack for navigating the politics of their school. It made me convinced if, that they would do just fine in life if they got past these pesky years of grades and homework. Their teachers were angels when they were new, demons once they'd graded the twins. <laughs> Angelic beginning. Mr. Velez is so handsome. He looks like a hot human Doberman. <laughs> Demonic ending. Mr. Velez sits too close to me when he's helping. I'll have my parents call and complain. I bet I'll get an A. <laughs> Angelic beginning. Madame Smith says I have a beautiful accent, like I'm from Marseille. Where's Marseille? <laughs> Demonic ending. Madame Smith doesn't even know French. If we get her fired, Dad will make sure they hire someone better next year. All through it, my thoughts were on my rent and student loans. I was their yes man. I lifted their angels and cast down their demons. That was my angelic beginning. I was an adult who talked to them. My demonic ending? I was still waiting to find out. Each evening during that slushy winter, I placed my sky umbrella in the iron stand and then started tutoring the twins in front of the faux logs of the gas fireplace. They'd get sleepy around nine, which is when I'd head home. Usually it was just the twins, Vera, and me with mom reading on the couch. But once in a while, the upper regions of the house would be blazing and clinking. One time, the block was filled with movie trucks. They're filming Gossip Girl upstairs, a twin explained. Blair's pretending to bark on our toilet. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. We're going to be extras. We'll just walk by like, hey, Blair, that's so not cool. 
Another evening, Clinton fundraiser upstairs. Mom and dad are big supporters. Yet another time, John Grissom was in the TV room watching the Oscars by himself. <laughs> I could chat for hours with the twins' mother about books and politics and gossip. Whenever I ran into their father, though, it was like I encountered a weather event instead of a person. Forbes listed him as among the 150 wealthiest people in America. His job was reinvesting his own wealth. I didn't have anything interesting to say about that. I was poor, but went to Harvard. Was gay, but mispronounced Sermez. <laughs> I think I confused him. I don't know, whatever the cause, something short-circuited between us. There was a prize for a bookish outsider in the world of the girls and their mother. Father, though, glided by me like a car passing a pedestrian. One Tuesday night, I arrived late after a pipe reburst in my apartment and found live jazz coming from the basement, tuxedo-clad waiters bringing Vera's chicken downstairs along with flutes of champagne and drafts of beer. Dad runs a high-stake poker game once a month, a twin explained between conjugations. 25K buy-in. A waiter raised an eyebrow at me as he headed down. The twins always handled paying me. I'd just ask for money when I needed it, mumbling something about three hours on Friday, two and a half on Sunday, four on Monday, giving a total that was more than my dad's monthly take-home pay when I was growing up. They'd, li they'd listen impatiently before running up to a safe somewhere and coming back with a wad of bills. The stack of money, inches thick, was the answer to my debt, my insurance, my housing, my food. They passed it over cheerfully, like a loaned pencil. This night, the twins needed change for a hundred, so one of them padded down to the poker game in her pajamas. Loud greetings and cheers as father introduced her to the guests. She came back up with two fifties. Only Toby McGuire had any change, she said as she handed me one of them. I still have that 50. <laughs> While the twins went to outlandish lengths to get their father's attention, hosting fashion shows at school or hiring a producer to put together their first single and breathlessly racing to their father with the MP3 on their laptop, I watched them continue to fall in love with the other adults in their lives, and then assassinate them. Personal trainer, geometry teacher, in-house hair cutter, adored and then dispatched, adored and dispatched. A few nights after the poker night, the twins ran upstairs to get the money to pay me, but it was father who came downstairs. He held out the cash, but kept his fingers on his end as I reached. There we were, God and Adam, holding either end of a stack of $100 bills. How about a round of poker, he asked. Just you and me, double or nothing. Mother came to the top of the stairs, waving her hands frantically. No, don't do it. <laughs> no, thanks, I said. Thumbs up from Mother. That's too bad, Father said. Good move, Mother said, once Father had left for Shanghai. The tennis instructor lost a whole summer wages last year. 
I finished up my work with the twins and had my usual chat with their mother while I put on my coat and knotted my scarf. When I reached for my sky umbrella, though, it was gone. Mother saw my confusion. Oh, sorry. Clyde's always stealing umbrellas, she said. Just pick another, whichever you choose. I looked at the umbrellas. Many of them were golf style with double linings, wooden handles. A couple sported the Four Seasons insignia. I was pretty sure that they were all more expensive than mine, but none had a sky beneath it. Knowing that I looked like an idiot, I kept searching through the stand, picking up the same umbrellas twice, three times, putting them back, mumbling. The twins were watching. Why did I have no chill about this? <laughs> Their eyes were empty, black, shining. I started to protest and then stopped. How dare I dig my heels in over an umbrella when I had a thick stack of $100 bills in my pocket? Mother blinked at me in incomprehension. I dropped a dime in a dish and now was taking a different dime in return. What was the big deal? I selected a duck-handled beauty and headed out into the snowy night. I lost it a few weeks later. <laughs> it up. Our second story was written by Tiffany, and my question for you before Andrew presents your story is, living or dead, who would you most like to go on a pub crawl with? And plus, no hangover. Oh. Wow. Mickey Rourke. <laughs> <laughs> why, why did that, just like, you looked at me like it was so obvious. Why, why did that pop in your What do you imagine that that would be your drink of, of choice or the build of drink? All of them. All of them. <laughs> so the answer is all the pubs, all, all the, the drinks, drinks, and Mickey Ward. Mickey Ward. Right. Perfect. Yeah. So with that, we're going to hear Every Which Way, written by Tiffany and performed by Andrew. Every Which Way. We need to talk. <laughs> My supervisor's lips are pursed like she's just sucked a lemon. The expression on her face suggests this is going to be painful. For me. <laughs> Helen Weinberg is a woman not to be trifled with, and she never lets me forget it. But something about her posture makes me think it's serious. Right now, her beady eyes are fixed on an imaginary spot somewhere on the wall behind me. I can feel the heat of the crucible closing in, like she's Reverend Paris and I'm about to be burned at the stake. Or maybe teaching has turned my mind and I'm just being paranoid. Either way, I'm cooked. What could she possibly want to talk about? Are my clothes too tight? Too loose? Am I too tight? Too loose? Did I curse again? Sometimes that happens. Shit. It's always happening. But this is New Jersey. There are no delicate flowers here. Least of all, Helen fucking Weinberg. There's a problem, she says. Yeah, I gathered that. After all, it's, not my, fir it's my first year teaching. High school English, everything's a problem. Problems are sort of a thing around here. <laughs> Education has become a liability, and the teacher's its currency. Something wrong? Blame the teacher. Left hand, don't you dare look at what the right hand is doing. And all the while, the politicians profess their love for the fine educators of the Garden State while digging into the coffers to finance their back-alley soprano-like deals. <laughs> what have I gotten myself into? 
I turn to Jeremy, a student who'd been offering various excuses about his missing homework, and tell him he needs to get his life together. Sure thing. He gives me a nod and strolls into the crowded hallway. Jeremy isn't in a rush to get to his next class, or anywhere for that matter. I feel his apathy seeping into my soul. Let's step into my office, Helen says. I follow her into the tiny room that really should be a broom closet. It smells like forgotten dreams and dust, and the three million damaged books that Helen is too sentimental to discard, even though her heart is made of ice, and Tessa Duberville hasn't been on the curriculum since 1973. <laughs> <laughs> Helen can't let go of anything. I take a seat and wait for the bomb to drop. I don't want to talk. I want to go home and sleep for 30 years. <laughs> then I want to wake up, make a sandwich, and die. <laughs> Helen wants me to beg for my life. I can tell by the way she slowly takes off her lime green blazer. Yeah, it's lime green. I only mention the color because it makes me think of slime, which makes me think of boogers, which makes me think my fashion choices aren't the reason she's getting ready to destroy my life. She folds it over the back of her leather chair and takes a deep breath, as if gathering the strength to deal with me. Like she can't even. I would ask her, if I'd done something wrong, but that would be seen as a confession. Helen Weinberg hates weak women. She pounces on them, digging her claws in at the first sign of divergence. Plus, I'm exhausted. In the last two weeks, I've graded 150 essays, fought an epic battle with the copy machine, which may or may not have resulted in a sprained wrist, and hand-cut 75 paper leaves in various autumnal colors for a word tree. <laughs> that I won't find the time to assemble until after winter break. I'm not winning. <laughs> it's the beginning of November, and I've aged a solid 15 years since the first day of school. The thing they don't tell you about teaching is that to be any good at it, you'll be second-guessing yourself, crying, and curled in the fetal position every night if you aren't careful. Only the really good teachers care enough to fall apart. As an added bonus, the flu started early this year thanks to a hefty combination of the hot, humid Indian summer, a hay fever onslaught, and mold growing in the ceiling above the book closet at the back of the room. <laughs> You're damn right, Helen. We need to talk. <laughs> Pay no attention to the fuzzy growth on the spine of your literature, kids. That's how the flavor gets in. <laughs> There's no shortage of insufficient metaphors that attempt to capture the essence of teaching. I've heard people compare it to a blind date, a marathon, an extended dark night of the soul. <laughs> but the truth is, none of them encapsulate all the nuances, hidden challenges, amazing gems, or the unexpected things they don't cover in education courses. You know, like the mold. Honestly, teaching is a bit like riding a roller coaster, as cliche as it might sound. Some days you're climbing an endless hill, waiting for the bottom to drop out from under you, and other days you're free-falling into the depths of despair. Not to dramatically oversell it or anything. <laughs> Today it sucks. Tomorrow you're a genius. Hero! Go. <laughs> Hero! Go. <laughs> and so on. Mrs. Raymond has filed an HIV violation against you on behalf of her daughter, Kayla. Helen Weinberg's smirk suggests she's enjoying this. Who is Kayla Raymond, I think? <laughs> wow, I say. For a first-year teacher, I knew a lot of important things. The code to the copier, that my lesson plans are due on Monday at 8 a.m., and that my supervisor, 
Helen fucking Weinberg, <laughs> is the piss. The list of things I don't know is much longer. You know, things like my students' quirks, or the dragons that haunt them in the night, or their names. <laughs> Not really. I mean, it's only been a few weeks, and at this point, they all look the same. The apathy, the attitude, the amazing ability to text and walk at the same time. Who could blame me? Helen Weinberg, that's who. So what happens now, I ask? Kayla Raymond could be anyone. She could have been the student I'd yelled at for vaping in the bathroom, or the one I had to physically separate from her boyfriend as she jammed her tongue down his throat, or the one who tried passing off her sister's essay as her own. There are hundreds of Kayla Raymonds, and only one of me. I'm just trying to do my job. Keep my head above the water, follow the rules, you know, teacher stuff. What had I done to deserve this? As my supervisor pretends to gather her thoughts, I discreetly pull a photo of Kayla Raymond from the portal on my computer. She's a pipsqueak with mousy brown hair, thick red-framed glasses, and a soft, reserved smile. None of this makes any sense. Then it hits me. Kayla is quiet in class. Shit. <laughs> Too quiet. <laughs> she always seems to be taking notes and following along, so I didn't see fit to force her to participate. This had been my first mistake. Sure, sometimes I use sarcasm, like I'm getting paid by the quip, and I like to push the envelope to get students thinking. But bullying? Not a chance. Most of my humor is self-deprecating jargon about loving my dog and being in a long-term relationship with Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> had I mentioned my affinity for horoscopes and healing crystals and old tarot cards, or that my grandmother might have descended from Czechoslovakian gypsies. <laughs> Maybe this really was a witch hunt. I pull up the HIV law and wait to hear my fate. Would I go the way of Rebecca Nurse or be pressed to death like Giles Court? <laughs> Harassment, intimidation, and bullying. I start to sweat. Redness flushes my cheeks. The law isn't meant for teachers. It's meant to protect students in the event such things occur. And I've got it, really, I do. I know the difference between a bully and a bystander. I know the difference between bullying and conflict. And I know that once hysteria starts, there's little anyone can do to put the storm back in the box. But what did any of that have to do with me and Kayla Raymond? Maybe in a past life I was burned at the stake and I'm still working off the terrible karma for hexing some farmer and poisoning his goats or something. I almost laughed to myself thinking about my new agey approach to spirituality and my staunch Catholic background. Talk about juxtaposition. I bet the nuns are having a good laugh about this one. Witches have power, unlike me in this moment. We're going to have to interview 20 of your students as part of the investigation. Investigation? Shit! Shit, shit, shit! Helen almost laughs. She claims you are denying her the Christian right to say God bless you when someone sneezes. <laughs> It is a witch hunt. I nearly fall out of my chair. If you've ever been in an allergy-infested classroom when students are trying to take a test or write an essay or independently read and one person sneezes, the cacophony of giggles is deafening. So I told them not to call out, not to say God bless you. I want to explain to Helen that my classroom management strategy is to is to personally bless my students using the power of all the gods and goddesses <laughs> of the universe before a major test. Allah, Buddha, Jesus, the forest wood nymphs, and King LeBron James. 
I was careful to include all the greats. Most of my students laughed. None of them ever called out again. But Helen Weinberg isn't interested. She's looking at that imaginary spot on the wall with a scowl on her face again. And she takes a breath, folds her hands on the desk, and tilts her head to the side, all serious-like. Great, there's more. Apparently, Kayla's been keeping a diary of all the things you've said in the classroom. <laughs> Holy tituba. <laughs> Kayla Raymond had interpreted things I said through a dirty filter. I didn't stand a chance. Stories about my Hungarian grandfather's nickname of Ivan the Terrible had been twisted into abusive tales of woe. The time I pretended to look into my imaginary crystal ball to warn of an up upcoming reading check quiz had morphed into me portending to divine the future by ill-gotten means, actual words used. Joking with Lazy Jeremy about his lack of academic motivation had made Kayla so worried about the quality of her own work that she cried all night long and, according to her mother, made herself sick any time she merely thought about coming to my class. Never mind that Jeremy and I have a stellar rapport and his father explicitly told me to Stay on his ass all year. <laughs> I was only following directions. Look where that got me. Sitting across from Helen Weinberg, trying desperately to choke back my tears, I'm baffled. Neither Kayla nor her mother, Mrs. Raymond, had ever spoken to me about any of this. They simply went all the way to the top because the class transfer request was not honored. And now I was being accused of bullying, bigotry, and witchcraft. Witchcraft. Like, okay. <laughs> so, what happens now? I ask wearily. The committee will review the evidence after the investigation. Yeah, I think. They probably did the same thing in Salem, too. <laughs> Days later, I haven't been able to sleep, and it shows on my face. I feel like a fool, and even less like a teacher. The whole time I'd been thinking this student was taking notes about To Kill a Mockingbird, and she was rewriting the damn crucible. And then I remember something Atticus says in the novel. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb inside of his skin and walk around in it. I'd been preoccupied with the what of my job, preparing to teach the content and the rules and tests and essays and standards and all of that, but I'd forgotten about the why and that I was teaching humans. Children who just left the surety of eighth grade and wandered into this big bad land of high school and all it entails. Crossing over, experiencing other realms of existence. Sounds super, supernatural to me. <laughs> but my students aren't imaginary. They are real, living, breathing creatures with moods and hopes and fears. And fear is a powerful accelerant. After the investigation cleared me of any wrongdoing, the vice principal shared the official report with me. He had a good laugh. In the end, they transferred Kayla to another class for my own protection. How's that for irony? I think maybe she didn't learn half as much as I did from the experience. Hey, favorite teacher. <laughs> I hear you were accused of being a witch. <laughs> it's the boy who started this whole thing, Lazy Jeremy. The one who forgets his homework. Today he's smiling, and I smile back. He was one of the kids who testified on my behalf. Yeah, fear causes people to do crazy things. Are you a witch? 
he asks with a twinkle in his eye. I wave my hands through the air all dramatically and shake my head. Nope. You still here? <laughs> he laughs. I told them you make miracles happen, he says, finally handing in his homework three weeks late. <laughs> I take the stack of papers from his outstretched hand. He doesn't ask how many points I'm going to take off for his tardiness, and I don't mention it either. We both learned something important. Thanks for not turning me into a frog, he says. <laughs> the year's still early, I reply. Anything's possible. <laughs> tutor, you see, and I normally work with high school students. This particular student was a freshman when I first started working with him. Are your eyes closed? <laughs> no peeking? Okay, so imagine a tall, strapping lad with a smile that makes folks swoon. A smile that fully satisfies the equation, if you will, of the face. Imagine this young buck saunters into a room and his charisma is such that you start to wonder why God, or what you will, neglected to supply you with the proper genes suitable for reproduction. And it's really just a roll of the dice, but what number did you land on? Of course, it's not that you're ugly, but he's just so damn handsome. A combination of Errol Flynn and early David Niven. And yes, I'll admit that if we were to put him in a time machine and sent him to the 1980s Hollywood, he'd probably land a job pretty quickly, playing one of those jock villain types. His father gave him a fancy sports car, which he drove around in. Barbie doll girlfriend in the passenger seat with a sense of entitlement Trumpian in its malevolence. Okay, you can open your eyes. If you want. Oh, and then attach this teen idol's voice, a British accent. But not one of those that makes you feel a little less than civilized, but one of those inclusive ones. Warm, inviting even. Think Sally Hawkins, or hell, Paul McCartney. You know, one of those gentlemen wearing a scarf and a wool cap you might meet in the pub. <laughs> you get the general idea. Also, I should mention this kid's never without a girlfriend, and even once forgot to break up with one girl before he started dating the next one. A real player. Must be the accent and the charm. Both of which I lack, but this little story isn't about me. Okay, well, it sort of is, but that we're not just going there yet. Or if we have to go there for the sake of argument, let's just say, I am 40 and all that entails. Beer belly, a hair graveyard on my head, 
a New Jersey accent worthy of the term record scratch, and a look in the eyes of dreams gone bye-bye. But this vision of beauty, this Lawrence self, is not without his flaws. A fraud lurks beneath those silent film stars' eyes. Take his taste in movies, for example. All right. I know he's only 16, but we have to start sometime. Look at a Van Gogh coffee table book or something, anything. (laughs) Now far be it for me to decry those horror movies where one's maturity is shunted in the name of, dare I say, entertainment. But there's something to be said about culture. Either one has it or one doesn't. Lawrence Self doesn't. What kind of movies do you like? I asked Larry when we first met in the study room at the public library. I was trying to get to know him before we started working together to build a relationship. He looked around the room and spoke. I like horror movies. (laughs) What type of horror movies? Anything with blood and torture? (laughs) I see. I sat back in my chair. He was smiling, so I smiled back. (laughs) What about you? What do you like? He asked me, eyebrows raised in some semblance of interest. I like all sorts of things, I guess. Some, some horror, I suppose. Night of the Living Dead, The Shining, stuff like that. I've seen those, he said, shaking his head. But they're kind of old. <laughs> what do you mean by old? They don't scare me, really. I like it better when they torture people and take slices off their bodies. <laughs> I see. So fine, let's not pick on Larry's taste for movies. Let's look deeper. See, there's something I'm not telling you, but maybe you've gleaned it from his movie preferences. Larry is somewhat vicious. And by that I mean he's not a good kid. He tells teachers to go fuck themselves on occasion. Okay, not literally fuck as far as I know, but in every way possible besides actually saying the words. You know how teenagers can be. You'd seen that smirk that makes you wonder how such a big chip on the shoulder ever gets reduced in later years. You think about the one you had way back when, and the scoff you'd release at anyone's questioning said chip's veracity. Anyway, there's a certain evilness in Larry, an inability to empathize, let's say. There's something else I'm not telling you about Lawrence. He can't read. Uh, Through a series of issues in early childhood with his brain, Lawrence has grown up with severe dyslexia. He can't read a word. When I first caught wind of Larry's secretive, bilious, and vapid nature, rather than feeling even remotely sorry for him, I ended up quite angry. I mean, if you can't read, then that essentially qualifies as an emergency. Forget about your reputation as a ladies' man or a tough guy. You've got shit to do. You lack a skill so all-encompassing that to say it would be a detriment to your life is a gross understatement. And further, what is the point of his indulgences in violence? Does it really mean anything without literature? (laughs) I'll give you an example. When I was about 12 or 13 years old, I read John Irving's novel, The World According to Garth. It was the first adult book I ever read. And I remember thinking after I finished, I thought a lot of things, since the novel covers quite a bit of terrain, that violence is essentially a failure of communication. This isn't exactly revelatory, but for a 12-year-old it was. Where or how or why would Larry learn such a concept? Is good inherent? I don't think so. I've never thought so. There's a reason I read and write fiction, and there's a reason I teach English. Humanity, for all its bells and whistles, is essentially inchoate. We don't know how to communicate yet. Sure, we can FaceTime with someone in Fiji, but have you talked to your neighbor lately? (laughs) For all my high ideals, I wasn't much of an example. For the first few weeks after I got to truly know Larry, I was rather distant with him, a teacher with a low tolerance for bullshit. He creeped me out. 
so I figured the less I knew about him, the better. We worked on what we worked on, and we didn't engage in too much banter. I assigned him the book Holes by Lewis Sacker, partially because he had already seen the movie, and that would make it easier for him to focus on other aspects. I figured the best I could do was read along with him and see to it that he at least attempted to try to read every few pages. We went along like this for a few weeks, stopping to talk every now and then about what the characters were going through, etc., etc. Every chapter we read, he would resort to the movie picture in his mind and just sort of retell what happened. Then one day, I was talking to another teacher about Larry's negative attributes and my supreme indignation at his sort of willful ignorance. She said she felt like he had been neglected in a way, though he wanted for nothing. His family was rather well-to-do, and they did care for him deeply. And she told me that Larry had confided in her that when he was younger, he'd gone out into the woods behind his house with a rope. He had watched YouTube videos and knew how to make the knot. He was at the point, he had said, where it didn't matter anymore. His challenges had beat him, and he didn't know what to do with that defeat. Another reason we read, to see through this illusion of loss that rears its ugly head time and time again. But he couldn't. He just couldn't. Suffice it to say, I had something of a lump in my throat. While I didn't believe people really communicated effectively enough, I hadn't considered my own lack of accessibility to others. Here I was with all sorts of stories in my head, both mine and others, yet I couldn't access his story, his truth. I was too busy with my own, that fading man I saw in the mirror every morning. The next time I worked with him, I just sort of talked to him. We talked about the movie It, which I'd read the novel of years ago, I started to talk to him a bit about Lovecraft and the idea of cosmic indifference, but that was the wrong tack. What he really wanted to talk about was Pennywise the Clown. He really liked Pennywise, which I didn't really understand. I mean, how do you like an insane clown that kills children? But he did. That was what he responded to. I told him that from what I could remember of the novel, Pennywise, or the alien that incarnated this Pennywise, was actually from the beginning of time, the beginning of the universe, and that another creature was also from the same place. He said he didn't remember that from the movie. I said, yes, it's in the novel, and it was a turtle. Yes, a giant space turtle. Think of it now, it seems rather ridiculous, but whatever, he was listening. That's weird, he said. Why, why a turtle? There was something in his eyes that I hadn't seen before. Curiosity. A light bulb had been turned on inside his head. I turned mine on, too. Well, I said... It's possible that there are things out there in the universe that we simply wouldn't be able to understand. And these things may or may not care about us. In fact, they might see us as a nuisance, flies at a picnic. But the turtle created us, and maybe it cares. He looked around the room again. I think the turtle cares, he said. Somebody has to care. You might be right, I said. I put holes down and asked him if he'd like to try to read it instead, just sections here and there, not the whole thousand-page tome. He said, sure. Later that day, I looked up on Google Images what text looked like if you were dyslexic. Close your eyes one more time. Go ahead. Don't be afraid. Imagine you're reading whatever it is you're reading these days. Now take an empty mason jar and place it over the text. Now start reading. Maybe you managed to get halfway down the page. Great. Now imagine the words are disappearing randomly as you try to continue to the bottom of the page. Now we're getting somewhere. Now you're starting to feel panic that goes to the bone. How does one survive without words? How does one live without Mr. Darcy or Hester Prynne or Harry Potter tucked away in that special place in the brain reserved only for books? What is left for someone in that blinding terror but to lash out and defy? Maybe they don't become an alien clown that kills children, but they're not that far off. Cosmic indifference isn't limited to outer space. 
It happens between us and it happens in the mind. As we get older and grumpier, it sort of hollows us out and leaves us empty. But it can get to you in other ways too. You don't have to be old and you don't have to be curmudgeonly. You can be young and full of life. The only question is whether or not we share, we can share this emptiness. Because when we share it, we are somehow filled. Okay, open your eyes. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.